Well, for some reason, uh, the, the issue uh, that's caught my attention in the last few weeks and, and, and is this issue of social isolation, and particularly as part of that loneliness. And I don't know why it's caught my attention, but you know you, you get these times where, you know, it could be with a person or with an issue, and the, uh, wherever, you, wherever you turn, you see something about it. You read a story in the newspaper, or you're having a conversation with somebody, or whatever it is, and I just can't escape this, this particular thing about isolation, social isolation and loneliness. And uh, I shared with you, actually, I think two weeks ago, a particular statistics, which I'm going to rehearse now to you again, because you all have forgotten. Uh, but because I think they illustrate that this isn't just something I'm seeing, but it's something I think nationally we're beginning to see. Uh, 800,000, from a report done by the uh, Centre for... Uh, CSJ, Centre for Social Justice, uh, 800,000 people in our nation are chronically lonely. So many, by the way, that we now have a loneliness minister in the UK. I don't know if you knew that. 70% of older people interact with other people less than once a week. 11% less than once a month. There's an increased chance of early death associated with social isolation. In fact, it's up to 30% increased chance of, of premature death. That's more than, I think, smoking and uh, obesity. Uh, there was a recent study done which polled Church of England clergy, uh, and great, more than 76% of them said that loneliness, uh, mental illness, and social isolation were the most common issue they were facing as clergy. Now, we've got various approaches in our society to dealing with this, this issue uh, with, of social isolation. I read something in the Times yesterday night, uh, just before I went to bed, uh, don't do as I do uh, on my iPad, don't do that before you go to bed. And also, by the way, if you're interested, don't drink a fully leaded coffee at 7pm because I was up last night with my eyes open like that trying to get to sleep. <laughs> Basically saying that actually increasingly people are leaning, particularly amongst the elderly, we're leaning on medication to deal with issues which fundamentally aren't medical. They're about isolation and loneliness. Increasingly we're medicating people to deal with what is a social issue. So that's one of the approaches. We also, don't we, we, go for, we reach for entertainment, don't we? You know, if we're feeling a bit low or a bit lonely, we'll stick Netflix on for seven hours in the evening. Certainly, I've been known to do that. Got a quote here. Uh, the mobile television, computers, headphones, gaming systems all offer a form of consumption that takes place in isolation. I think we can have this on the screen. That's good. Take place in isolation. Next slide. But they only increase a person's isolation and loneliness by consuming a person's time, attention, mental agility and relationships. Isn't that interesting? The very things that we turn to to give us a sense of connection can actually function to increase, to exacerbate the issue we're trying to resolve. And it's not just entertainment. That was by a lady called Rosalind Murphy. It's not just entertainment. Actually, the internet is something we turn to a lot, isn't it? The interweb, I don't know if you've heard of it. Al Gore invented it a little while ago. That's an in-joke. Strangely enough, uh, Rosalind Murphy says, internet can use can 
and does decrease feelings of social well-being, even when being used purely for communication. Email, for example. Who feels good after doing a round of emails? I mean, tell me. This suggests that in time, more stimulation will be needed for greater emotional gratification. Alternatively, get this, this is powerful, both social and emotional well-being flourish during face-to-face interaction. Who knew? (laughs) Seeing somebody's face is more effective than staring into a computer. Many of the people who are most affected by the increase in social isolation already exist on the margins of our society. I mentioned to you the elderly. I believe there's a an epidemic of growing proportion amongst the elderly. Yeah, if we're really honest, as a society, we don't value age in the way that we did. Uh, age used to be something that we would revere. We'd look to older people, we'd say, well, they're repositories of wisdom. And now we see them often, if we're being really honest, and I, I, I hesitate even to say this, because I don't agree with it, but it is true. I think our society sees older people more and more as a nuisance. You know, we want to put them in the fringe of society so they can't slow us down. This is deeply problematic. The mentally ill also exist almost on the fringes. Now, I would say, uh, and this is a positive thing, there is less and less stigma now attached to mental illness, and I think that's a very positive move in our culture. However... I still don't think that we have the tools as a culture to deal with the issue of mental illness. Again, I think we too quickly we medicate. I want to say also the young. You know, we, we do love and revere the young in our culture, no question of that. However, I think often our, uh, we are tempted, again, driven by probably economic goals to sideline their development. There's less face-to-face interaction, less discipleship uh, sort of relationships uh, than I think there should be. They're isolated often in a half reality, the internet. Now, the internet isn't going to raise a generation of people who do good, who love life and who love God. We need to find some different ways to live. The truth is that many people in our society today feel totally invisible. Maybe you're one of those people. We're in a series called Jesus and the One. Today we're looking at Jesus and his interaction with a man who was full of leprosy. And every one of these sermons is, is, is attempting to unpack an extraordinarily life-changingly powerful encounter that Jesus had with someone. By the way, Jesus didn't have encounters that weren't extraordinary. But I've got to say, you're not supposed to pick favourites in the Bible, just as you're not supposed to have favourite children. And I don't. But this is one of my favourites <laughs> in the Bible. I just think it's enormously powerful. Enormously powerful story. And the first thing we need to understand about this story of Jesus and the leper is however isolated we might feel, However isolated people within our society might feel, nobody is more isolated than this man. This leper who comes to Jesus begging for help, begging for mercy. 
And you may not know too much about leprosy, but the first thing that we meet in this man, the first description that's used about this man is that he is literally covered with leprosy. You might want to open your Bible. You can follow with me. Verse 12, while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. The word there actually is full, full of leprosy. This condition, this ailment wasn't just something that was sort of peripheral to his being. It wasn't something that sort of, you know, he could cover up if he wanted to go out for a nice meal. No, this was, this became, he was so sick that this sickness has become, had become his very identity. It was full of leprosy. It was a terrible case, a hopeless case. Now, you may not know too much about leprosy, and actually, leprosy is a condition, at least in this part of the world, has been dealt with. But in the Old Testament law, it was such a significant issue that two chapters, Leviticus 13 and 14, were, con- were given over simply to dealing with what should be done with leprosy. And it was, it was like a catch-all condition used to describe uh, 72 particular conditions from, uh, and I'm going to have to look at my notes for this, boils, burns, itches, and ringworm. Incredibly strict regulations about how people with this condition should be treated because it was highly contagious. And so people with it were ostracized, not because they were necessarily inherently seen as less valuable initially, but because for the benefit of the rest of the community, they had to be kept somehow separate. And yet over generations, over millennia of tradition, these people who were kept separate became seen as less than. You know, day to day, if you were a leper in this culture, you were seen as unclean. And your experience of life was an experience of utter exclusion. You were excluded from common society. You were excluded from the community of faith. You weren't allowed to go to the tabernacle or the temple. In other words, you wouldn't be allowed to come to church. Because you were seen as unclean. Your very, the core of your being, your relationship with God himself was imperiled by this condition. Communion with God. Also from community in, in the camp or the city, you weren't allowed. You would in fact have to dwell in a colony outside, far enough away from the city. And you would exist, this sort of half existence, you'd have this half existence with other people with leprosy. You couldn't be part of the community. You couldn't even really be part of your own family. You were, you were shut off from contact with other humans. Your own family would leave food out outside the door and you'd come and collect it and take it away. You couldn't even be a part of a family. No kinship groups. Whenever you approached somebody else in the street, you'd have to shout out at the top of your voice, Unclean! Unclean! So that they knew they weren't to approach you. It was a horrible, horrible place to be. And added to that, there was no hope. People with leprosy simply didn't get better. There was no radical course of antibiotics. Nothing. You were stuck like that. That was your life for the remainder of your life. And the thing which 
caught me as I was thinking about this was just the effect, the scars that that would leave. Not just physical scars, although you would have plenty of those. You'd have stuff all over your body. It'd be very evident. But imagine the emotional and psychological trauma that would cause. Think about, think about living years without somebody looking in your face. So much as touching you. Now look, I know there are five love languages. But we all agree that touch is the top one, don't we? Imagine living a whole, a whole life without touch, nobody touching, literally being untouchable. There was a piece of research done by a 13th century German king called King Frederick II. And King Frederick II wanted to find out what language children would learn if they weren't spoken to. Would they learn the language of their own country? Of course they'd learn German, wouldn't they? They're growing up in Germany. There was a second condition to his experiment, and that, that condition was that these children also couldn't be touched. Of course, what King Frederick found was that the children didn't grow up speaking any language because all the children died in infancy. You can't live without touch. Because touch is one of the ways that we manifest love to one another. And yet this group of people, this man has been living without touch for years. When Jesus walked the earth, leprosy was the worst of all plagues. Not only was it a filthy, deadly disease from which no one recovered, but its contagion spread arbitrarily and wildly, rendering beloved family members outcasts and wanderers in the beat of the heart. Lepers, moral and social outcasts, isolated, rejected, feared, despised, banded together in pain, waiting to die, bereft of hope. Leprosy was more than an infectious skin disease. It rendered the person who embodied it unfit to be part of a healthy community and unable to join in worship of God. I think you get the picture. Leprosy was a death sentence. There was no hope of recovery. This man has been robbed of everything that made his life worth living. Health, a name, an occupation, a family, a community, even the capacity to worship his God. Right on the margins. And yet, it is in the midst of this reality that he encounters Jesus. And the encounter with Jesus is so staggering. It is so controversial. That as I was reading this week, I couldn't even believe it. it, it I, I really believe this is one of the most profound and dangerous things Jesus did in his whole ministry. And you can imagine the story, can't you? The leper, this guy who's lived on the fringes, hears. That Jesus, the wandering rabbi, is coming into town. And you can imagine that Jesus' PR machine, not that he had one, would have been particularly operative in marginalized people. Amongst the communities of people who were outsiders. Because as soon as Jesus started to heal, one thing came into these communities that had never been in them before. And that thing was hope. The hope, the distant hope that it might not always need to be like this. 
And this man hears, but this man doesn't just hear, this man responds. We find as we read in the text, he sees Jesus. It says, when he saw Jesus, the first thing that this man does, if we're going to focus in on him for a minute, he sees Jesus. And this seeing of Jesus isn't merely physical. It's not just that he sees him distantly, although that is the case. This seeing goes right to the heart of his self, into his soul and into his spirit. His seeing is a spiritual seeing as well, as a physical one. How do we know that? Well, look at this. It says, he fell with his face to the ground. This is a posture of worship. You get on your face in the Bible because you're worshipping someone or something. Isaiah, when he has his picture, his vision of God in the temple, does the right thing. He falls on his face before this holy God. This man does the right thing. He sees Jesus, not just some, uh, Jesus as some wandering rabbi, but he sees Jesus, I believe, as the, uh, the very presence of the living God. He begged him, Lord, this is the second reason we know that he sees Jesus beyond just the physical. He says, Lord, this is a title reserved in the scriptures for God alone. And, G- and the leper uses it to point to Jesus. And then finally he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. I love that. What he's saying is, I know you have the power. That isn't in doubt. The only question this man begs of Jesus is, are you willing? I know you can, but will you? Will you make me clean? Will you end these years of misery for me? But it's not just that this man sees Jesus. Jesus sees this man. And where everyone else has seen a half-breed, a sub-human, less than a person, Jesus sees somebody made in the image of God. How do we know? Well, look at what Jesus does. This is so mind-blowing. I can't even describe it. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. He touched him. What? He touched him. Everybody knew that if you touched somebody who was unclean, you yourself became ceremonially unclean. Jesus is saying, Jesus here, by virtue of what he's done, is not able to enter in to the community of God. He should be taking on, by touching this man, taking on his sickness, taking on his identity, as well as the fact that he's likely to catch this highly contagious disease. Only in the kingdom of God, the rules are flipped. In the kingdom of God, it works differently. In the kingdom of God, grace is more infectious than sickness. Mercy is more powerful than brokenness. Love is stronger than death. And Jesus' very touch brings this man out of his condition. I am willing. He said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him. There's one word translated by those three words, I'm willing, fellow. I am willing, I will it. 
I will it. I will it. Be made clean. Just imagine this man's psychology. He's become so habituated to his life. He can't imagine or conceive of a different way to exist. And there's this thing we do, isn't there, with our experience. We generalize from our experience. We say, because this is like it is, this is the way it ever shall be. That's the first move. And the second move is this. We then project that onto God. Because this is like it is, this is how it will always be. And this must be his will for me. Because somebody treated me as as if I was worthless, I must be worthless. And God must think I'm worthless. Because I feel shame, I must be shameful. And God must be ashamed of me. How often do we do this? And yet in this moment, Jesus breaks the curse over this man's life. I am willing, he says, be made clean. My desire for you is that you'd be clean. I don't want you to to sit in this condition, to live in this way. I wish that you would be clean. So what? I have a few questions to close on. Firstly, church. Hey, Jesse. Where is your leprosy? You know, we can can pretend, if you like, this morning, that the people who feel marginalized, that the people who feel excluded, that the people that feel like they don't belong, that the people who feel shame and guilt and fear, they're all out there. Or we can get real. And we can agree that we all feel those things. That there are times, there are occasions where we feel like we don't belong. Maybe even this morning some of you feel like you don't belong here. The beginning of this man's healing is engaging with his condition. It's not denying it. And I've got to say, the church could do a lot better of a job in this area. You know, we behave often as institutions and individuals within our institutions, the church, as if Jesus wants us to fake it until we make it. And by doing that, you know what we're doing? We're denying his reality and his power. We're saying that I have to make myself clean if I'm going to be any use to God. And he says, no, I am willing to be made clean. He's the one that does the transforming work. He's the one that brings the excluded person to the center. It is his power. Where is your leprosy? Maybe you're not a believer here. Maybe your experience of faith is being judged. Maybe you feel judged today. You feel like you're, you feel like you stand out. You walked into this room this morning. You were like, oh my gosh, I stand out. I feel unclean here. Maybe you've been coming to church for decades and you've never been able to shift this feeling that you're not a proper Christian, that you don't do it right, that you don't sing the songs the way you should sing them or you don't pray the prayers the way that you should pray them. No! I am willing, Jesus said, be made clean. In this place, everyone belongs. The whole point of the church, the whole point of of God's movement towards us in Jesus 
is that there's no need for fear, guilt, and shame. We're all told that we belong. These words to this leprous man are God's words to you today. I'm willing to be made clean. A second question is, what are you going to do with your leprosy? You're going to hide it. You're going to stay in the colony on the fringes of town. To quote Springsteen again, the darkness on the edge of town. Or you're going to step in. You're going to risk it all. This leprous man has, it's a Hebrew phrase, no, I don't know how to pronounce it probably, chutzpah. Courage. Faith. Daring. He has no right to do toward Jesus what he does. He's got no right to approach him. He must have been racked with thoughts of self-condemnation as he approached Jesus. What am I doing? You know this is illegal, don't you? They can take you away. They can lock you up for this. And yet his desperation outweighs those thoughts of self-condemnation. And he approaches Jesus anyway. And Jesus reaches out his hand. You know, if you're going to come into community... You have to silence the voices that say you don't belong. You have to be courageous. Nobody can do it for you. You've got to be brave. And it's hard to be brave. This man risked it all. We need a shot in the arm of his courage. Third question, what do you think Jesus wants to do with it? Are you stuck in a mentality which says that Jesus must, God must want me to be stuck? God must want me to live stigmatized. This is how he wants it. Or are you willing to open up to the possibility that Jesus wants you to be clean? Jesus wants you to be made well. Jesus wants to bring you more deeply and richly into an experience of his love and his grace and his mercy. Are you willing to lay behind yourself those false identities and step into something better? Finally, what do you think Jesus wants to do through it? How might Jesus want to use your story, your leprosy, and his healing of it to bless others? I believe that Jesus wants, in this place, Jesus wants to bring people out of isolation here so that we might invite a city Stuck, isolated, lost, whether students, uh, children, middle-aged people, elderly people, we might invite them into the presence of God where there is no longer any isolation, where everybody belongs, in which, a place in which everybody is blessed, built up, and everybody catches a picture of God who is worthy and who loves us.